Section 1 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Coleman Shue. In the following pages, it is our design to present a pleasing and interesting miscellany, which will serve to beguile the leisure hour, and will at the same time couple instruction with amusement. We have used but little method in the arrangement, choosing rather to furnish the reader with a rich profusion of narratives and anecdotes, all tending to illustrate the female character, to display its delicacy, its sweetness, its gentle or sometimes heroic virtues, its amiable weaknesses and strange defects, than to attempt an accurate analysis of the hardest subject man ever attempted to master, namely woman. It will be seen that we do not set down woman as a cipher in the account of human beings. We accord to her her full share of importance in the world, and we have not attempted to relieve her from a sense of her responsibility as an accountable being. Above all, we have not failed to impress upon her the obligations she is under to Christianity, whose benign influences have raised her to be the companion and bosom friend of man, instead of his mere handmaid and dependent. It is religion that must form such a character as the following, which, though applied by Pope to one of the most accomplished women of his time, is that of a Christian wife in every age and station. O blessed with temper, whose unclouded ray can make tomorrow cheerful as today. She who can love a sister's charms, or hear sighs for a daughter with unwounded ear. She who ne'er answers till a husband cools, or, if she rules him, never show she rules. Charms by accepting, by submitting sways. By causing the character of a woman to be more thoroughly discussed and better understood, by making it more frequently the theme of rational meditation to the young and ardent, who, from the force of defective education, are apt to regard all the sex beyond a very limited circle, as mere accessories to animal enjoyment, whose peace they may wound without compunction, and whose happiness they may peril without reflection. We feel that we shall do both sexes a good service, and one for which as they advance in life, and in their turn become husbands, wives, and parents, they will thank our little book as having helped them to know themselves and each other. Sketches indeed from that most passionate page, a woman's heart of feelings, thoughts, that make the atmosphere in which her spirit move but like all other earthly elements, or cast with clouds, now dark, now touched with light, with rainbows, sunshines, showers, moonlight, stars, chasing each other's change, I fain would trace its brightness and its blackness. Sketches of the Sex The First Woman and Her Antediluvian Descendants The Great Creator, having formed man of the dust of the earth, made a deep sleep to fall upon him, and took one of his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. Hence the fair sex, in the opinion of some authors, being formed of matter doubly refined, derived their superior beauty and excellence. Not long after the creation, the first woman was tempted by the serpent to eat of the fruit of a certain tree, in the midst of the garden of Eden with regard to which God had said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. This deception and the fatal consequences arising from it 
furnish the most interesting story in the whole history of the sex. On the offerings being brought, and that of Abel accepted, Cain's jealousy and resentment rose to such a pitch that, as soon as they came down from the mount where they had been sacrificing, he fell upon his brother and slew him. For this cruel and barbarous action, Cain and his posterity, being banished from the rest of the human race, indulged themselves in every species of wickedness. On this account, it is supposed they were called the sons and daughters of men. The posterity of Seth, on the other hand, became eminent for virtue and a regard to the divine precepts. By their regular and amiable conduct, they acquired the appellation of sons and daughters of God. After the deluge, there is a chasm in the history of women until the time of the patriarch Abraham. They then begin to be introduced into the sacred story. Several of their actions are recorded. The laws, customs, and usages by which they were governed are frequently exhibited. Woman in the Patriarchal Ages The condition of women among the ancient patriarchs appears to have been but extremely indifferent. When Abraham entertained the angels, sent to denounce the destruction of Sodom, he seems to have treated his wife as a menial servant. Make ready quickly, said he to her, three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes on the hearth. In many parts of the east, water is only to be met with deep in the earth, and to draw it from the wells is consequently fatiguing and laborious. This, however, was a task of the daughters of Jethro, the Midianite, to whom so little regard was paid, either on account of their sex or the rank of their father as high priests of the country, that the neighboring shepherds not only insulted them, but forcibly took from them the water they had drawn. This was a task of Rebekah, who not only drew water for Abraham's servant, but for his camels also, while the servant stood an idle spectator of the toil. Is it not natural to imagine that as he was on an embassy to court the damsel for Isaac, his master's son, he would have exerted his utmost efforts to please and become acceptable? When he had concluded his bargain and was carrying her home, we meet with a circumstance worthy of remark. When she first approached Isaac, who had walked out into the fields to meet her, she did it in the most submissive manner, as if she had been approaching a lord and master, rather than a fond and passionate lover. From this circumstance, as well as from several others related in the sacred history, it would seem that women, instead of endeavoring, as in modern times, to persuade the world that they confer an immense favor on a lover by deigning to accept of him, did not scruple to confess that the obligation was conferred on themselves. This was a case with Ruth, who had laid herself down at the feet of Boaz, and being asked by him who she was, answered, I am Ruth, thy handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. When Jacob went to visit his uncle Laban, he met Rachel, Laban's daughter, in the fields, attending on the flocks of her father. In a much later period, Tamar, one of the daughters of King David, was sent by her father to perform the servile office of making cakes for her brother Amnon. The simplicity of the times in which these things happen, no doubt, very much invalidates the strength of the conclusions that naturally arise from them. But notwithstanding, it still appears that women were not then treated with the delicacy which they have experienced among people more polished and refined. Polygamy also prevailed, which is so contrary to the inclination of the sex, and so deeply wounds the delicacy of their feelings, that it is impossible for any woman voluntarily to agree to it, even where it is authorized by custom and by law. Wherever, therefore, polygamy takes place, we may assure ourselves that women have built but little authority 
and have scarcely arrived at any consequence in society. Women of ancient Egypt, wherever the human race lives solitary and unconnected with each other, they are savage and barbarous. Wherever they associate together, that association produces softer manners and a more engaging deportment. The Egyptians, from the nature of their country, annually overflowed by the Nile, had no wild beasts to hunt, nor could they procure anything by fishing. On these accounts, they were under a necessity of applying themselves to agriculture, a kind of life which naturally brings mankind together for mutual convenience and assistance. They were likewise every year, during the inundation of the river, obliged to assemble together and take shelter, either on the rising grounds or in the houses, which were raised upon piles above the reach of the waters. Here, almost every employment being suspended, and the men and women long confined together, a thousand inducements not to be found in a solitary state would naturally prompt them to render themselves agreeable to each other. Hence their manners would begin more early to assume a softer polish and more elegant refinement than those of the other nations who surrounded them. The practice of confining women, instituted by jealousy and maintained by unlawful power, was not adopted by the ancient Egyptians. This appears from the story of Pharaoh's daughter, who was going with her train of maids to bathe in the river when she found Moses hid among the reeds. It is still more evident from that of the wife of Potiphar, who, if she had been confined, could not have found the opportunity she did to solicit Joseph to her adulterous embrace. The queens of Egypt had the greatest attention paid to them. They were more readily obeyed than the kings. It is also related that the husbands were in their marriage contracts obliged to promise obedience to their wives, an obedience which, in our modern times, we are often obliged to perform, though our wives entered into the promise. The behavior of Solomon to Pharaoh's daughter is a convincing proof that more honor and respect was paid to the Egyptian women than to those of any other people. Solomon had many other wives besides this princess, and was married to several of them before her, which, according to the Jewish law, ought to have entitled them to a preference. But notwithstanding this, we hear of no particular palace having been built for any of the others, nor of the worship of any of their gods having been introduced into Jerusalem. But a magnificent palace was erected for Pharaoh's daughter, and she was permitted, though expressly contrary to the laws of Israel, to worship the gods of her own country. Modern Egyptian Women The women of modern Egypt are far from being on so respectable footing as they were in ancient times, or as the European women are at present. In Europe, women act parts of great consequence, and often reign sovereigns on the world's vast theater. They influence manners and morals and decide on the most important events. The fate of nations is frequently in their hands. How different is their situation in Egypt? There they are bound down by the fetters of slavery, condemned to servitude, and have no influence in public affairs. Their empire is confined within the walls of the harem. There are their graces and charms entombed. The circle of their life extends not beyond their own family and domestic duties. Their first care is to educate their children, and a numerous posterity is their most fervent wish. Mothers always suckle their children. This is expressly commanded by Mahomet. Let the mother suckle her child full two years. If the child does not quit the breast, but she shall be permitted to wean it with the consent of her husband. The harem is the cradle and school of infancy. The newborn feeble being is not there swaddled and filleted up in a swath, the source of a thousand diseases. Laid naked on a mat, exposed in a vast chamber to the pure air, he breathes freely. 
and with his delicate limbs sprawls at pleasure. The daughter's education is the same, whalebone and husks, which martyr European girls they know not. They are only covered with a shift until six years old, and the dress they afterwards wear confines none of their limbs, but suffers the body to take its true form, and nothing is more uncommon than rickety children and crooked people. In Egypt, man rises in all his majesty, and woman displays every charm of person. The Egyptian women, once or twice a week, are permitted to go to the bath and visit female relations and friends. They receive each other's visits very affectionately. When a lady enters the harem, the mistress rises, takes her hand, presses it to her bosom, kisses, and makes her sit down by her side. A slave hastens to take her black mantle. She is entreated to be at ease, quits her veil, and discovers a floating robe tied around her waist with a sash, which perfectly displays her shape. She then receives compliments according to their manner. Why, my mother or my sister, have you been so long absent? We sighed to see you. Your presence is an honor to our house. It is the happiness of our lives. Slaves present coffee, sherbet, and confectionery. They laugh, talk, and play. A large dish is placed on the sofa on which are oranges, pomegranates, bananas, and excellent melons. Water and rose water mixed are brought in an ewer and with them a silver basin to wash the hands, and loud glee and merry conversation season the meal. The chamber is perfumed by wood of aloes in a brazier, and the repast ended, the slaves dance to the sound of cymbals with whom the mistresses often mingle. At parting they sometimes repeat, God keep you in health, Heaven grant you a numerous offspring. Heaven preserve your children, the delight and glory of your family. When a visitor is in the harem, the husband must not enter. It is the asylum of hospitality and cannot be violated without fatal consequences, a cherished right which the Egyptian women carefully maintain, being interested in its preservation. A lover, disguised like a woman, may be introduced into the harem, and it is necessary he should remain undiscovered. Death would otherwise be his reward. In that country, where passions are excited by the climate and the difficulty of gratifying them is great, love often produces tragical events. Persian Women Several historians in mentioning the ancient Persians have dwelt with peculiar severity on the manner in which they treated their women. Jealous almost to distraction, they confined the whole sex with the strictest attention and could not bear that the eye of a stranger should behold the beauty whom they adored. When Mahomet, the great legislator of the modern Persians, was just expiring, the last advice that he gave to his faithful adherents was, Be careful of your religion and your wives. Hence they pretend to derive not only the power of confining, but also of persuading them that they hazard their salvation if they look upon any other man besides their husbands. The Christian religion informs us that in the other world they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The religion of Mahomet teaches us a different doctrine, which the Persians believing carry the jealousy of Asia to the fields of Elysium and the groves of Paradise, where, according to them, the blessed inhabitants have their eyes placed on the crowns of their heads, lest they should see the wives of their neighbors. To offer the least violence to a Persian woman was to incur certain death from her husband or guardian. Even their kings, though the most absolute in the universe, could not alter the manners or customs of the country, which related to the fair sex. Widely different from this is the present state of Persia. By a law of that country, their monarch is now authorized to go, 
whenever he pleases into the harem of any of his subjects, and the subject on whose prerogative he thus encroaches, so far from exerting his usual jealousy, thinks himself highly honored by such a visit. A laughable story on this subject is told of Shah Abbas, who having got drunk at the house of one of his favorites, and intending to go into the apartment of his wives, was stopped by the doorkeeper, who bluntly told him, Not a man, sir, besides my master, shall put a mustachio here so long as I am porter. What, said the king, dost thou not know me? Yes, answered the fellow, I know that you are king of the men, but not of the women. End of section 1